KRWW, iRadio 76 proudly presents the 515 Show with your host, John Sarver. Who's at the 515 door today? That's how excited we are, man. I'm telling you, it is beyond belief that we have this gentleman in, and, and we were pinching ourselves for a couple of weeks now that, that we even have him here today. Um, it, it's As you well know, CKWR Radio 76 pulls for those Mopar people. <laughs> as much as we had Brian Wolf here and all the other gentlemen from all the other side of town, it is refreshing to hear somebody not only that knows about Mopar but is so deep into the history and lore. This guy should be on a uh, Hall of Fame already on a, one of those uh, Mount Rushmore things. <laughs> Mopar, Joe Pappas of the Motown Missile. How are you, Joe? Well, John, I'm great. How are you today? Dandy, if the rain would stop now, because it's got to be raining down by you, aren't you? Because you're down there in the midsection of, of Michigan, aren't you? Down closer that's, to, to Ohio. That's right. Yeah, oh, we are. We're getting a little bit of rain, but that's okay. It's yeah. got to water the grass somehow. <laughs> Do tell us... Uh, I mean, the backstory, and we've been telling our listeners beforehand for a couple of weeks now, that we bumped into you when we were down at National Trail uh, Race Raid down in, in Hebron, uh, Ohio. And uh, there was one of those things, if we weren't working that day, we would have definitely pulled up a chair next to you and just said, keep going. <laughs> yeah, well, that happens on occasion. I, uh you don't want to get me started. Someday, <laughs> no, we do want to get you started. It, it's phenomenal. Of all the stories and everything you knew, and so many times when you would like re, you know, tell us a story, we'd go, oh, that makes sense now. That fits. You know, I mean, all the stuff that folks knew about the Mo. You know what? I'm going to do it again. Only because you told that story. Please tell the people the story why the Motown missile was at one time the Mopar missile. Well, it, actually, it was the opposite way. the The Motown missile uh, uh, yes. morphed into the Mo, Mopar missile, and the basic story is fairly simple. In <laughs> uh, 1969, late 69. Uh, Ted Spihar, uh, who uh, built the original car, was approached by Chrysler to uh, take over a program, uh, a performance program that had been run out of the, I think they called it the Woodward Garage down in Highland Park. And that program was performance related, and they knew that this new class called Pro Stock was coming. So they um, essentially speeded up. He uh, was contracted to build the first missile car. And that car ran as the Motown missile through 1972. Uh, the first car was the Challenger. The second car was the uh, 1972 Barracuda. And at that point in time, I think there was some uh, legal uh, hassles going on in the background between Ted and Motown Records. Uh, Barry Gordy felt that he owned the name Motown and that no one could use it, and uh, there was some uh, legal battles going on, put it simply. It just so happened 
Yeah. That uh, at the end of the 72 season, Chrysler decided that it would be a good idea to have Don Carlton run the test program and Ted to run the motor program. So we divided up the shops, uh, Teddy in one, Johnny in another, and uh, the name of the car was changed to Mopar Missile, which better really, in, in, in hindsight, uh, took care of the, the brand, Mopar, uh, who was paying the bill anyhow, so that uh, the car from that point on was known as the Mopar Missile. If that makes sense. That makes that's great. Yeah, that's exactly what we're telling everybody around here is that Barry Gordy, for some reason, thought, wow, maybe he woke up in his sleep one day and thought, Motown. Yeah, that's great. I'll run with that. Like, nobody else has ever, ever, ever heard that word before. That yeah, before. yeah. John, I, I, you know, I grew up uh, knowing that Detroit was the Motor City and it was called Motown. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm pretty old now, so <laughs> so I, I had the feeling that uh, I think uh, Barry probably wasn't going to win that. Yeah. But uh, it, it made perfect sense. Uh, the, the name Mopar Missile was important for the, the brand, and uh, Mopar Parts, uh, Direct Connection, all those things. So it fit it real closely with marketing for Chrysler Corporation. So, See, good idea, I think. For those who don't know, Mr. Pappas is 41 years old, so he would have known about that, about the <laughs> part of town. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think 73 is more like it. But I was the baby of the group, I have to tell you. You know, how did you get, and that's another interesting story, Joe, how did you get involved with these guys? Well, I guess it started back in the 60s. I was living in Royal Oak, right near 12 and Woodward. And my best friend at the time uh, was a guy named Dave. And his sister was dating a gentleman by the name of Mike Fonz, who some Mopar people might recognize. And um, uh, Mike uh, was a drag racer and also a construction worker, but later went into full-time drag racing. And um, he got a deal uh, with Mopar to race a pro stock car uh, at the sometime in toward the end of set 1970, and he started building a Challenger that was a clone to the Motown Missile Challenger, and so Mike asked me to work part time at first and later full time on on the uh, the race team. So I started racing with Mike Fonz in the rod shop. And uh, in 1971, Mike ended up winning the NHRA Pro Stock Championship in Amarillo, Texas. Um, They did it differently back then. It wasn't based on points. You just had to win a particular race, and that was the race that Mike won that year. And uh, so he became the Pro Stock World Champion. And I stayed with him through the end of 1972, at which time he knew that, I think he knew, that his rod shop deal wasn't going to last too much longer. 
So he and Don Carlton were good friends, and he, knowing that uh, Don was going to need somebody, uh, kind of, uh, I always say he traded me or, or, or uh, sold my rights to Don. And uh, he said uh, around Christmas time, he says, well, next week, you go over to Carlton's shop. You're going to be working there. And I had no problem with that. So that's kind of how it happened uh, in a nutshell. So uh, the rest is history. I, I started working for Don Carlton at the end of 1972 and um, stayed there until the program was had ended at the end of 1974. So uh, it was a pretty good run with that uh, with that group now you went in joe as what not as a driver or a paint person but no i was a um uh basically a a, a mechanic fabricator and uh we, we of course back then the teams pretty much built their own cars uh it just so happened that don's new car that he got the first mopar missile was actually the chassis was built in California by a very famous builder named um, Ron Butler. And uh, some people may know the name because Ron had been a the builder and the crew chief for Andy Granatelli on those turbine-powered Indy cars. Wow. And I think... Uh, Ron was from New Zealand, but uh, I may be wrong on that. He was either Australian or New, uh, uh, a Kiwi. So, um, <laughs> at any rate, uh, that car was delivered and then finished here in Michigan, uh, which was minor work, and that's when I came on. And the car had actually already run at that time down at a test at the end of October in 72, uh, that test was at uh, Gainesville, and the car was pretty fast. Uh, it was a really beautifully done car, and it had been built under the direction of Tom Coddington, uh, who was uh, one of the original Ram Chargers and part of our race team. Uh, and Dick Oldfield had been out in California during the construction phase of that car. So when I came in, the car was already had already been run, but we were getting ready to go to uh, Pomona uh, for the Winter Nationals, and it turned out to be about an eight-week road trip out there because the uh, we go out there and we would test for a week or two. Well, actually, it turned out we tested three weeks prior. Uh, and then two more weeks because the race got postponed twice because of rain, and then uh, we came home. So we were there almost eight weeks uh, testing and racing. Man, that's a long, long gig for doing well, a shakeout. Yeah, well, you, you, you pack enough clothes and uh, laundry detergent, and those are the days when Holiday Inns had... Uh, uh, laundries uh, at every Holiday Inn, so you could just throw your stuff in there, and uh, <laughs> you needed it. You know, the, the funny thing is, Joe, that you saw pictures. 
now from like old magazines and stuff from the 60s where you see these Holiday Inn parking lots and there's engine parts all over the place, there's slicks all over the place, there's people right. building their engines. Did you guys ever have to do that? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we, uh, in, in early 73, um, we went to, uh, actually we were in California while we were testing, and we had so many parts and engines with us. We had to pull an extra trailer uh, with um, uh, drums of fuel, uh, engines, and all kinds of extra parts. Drums of so, fuel. Yeah, yeah. We oh. had we mixed our own fuel, but um, it was uh, half 115, 145 Avgas and half 260 Sunoco 260. So we're staying at this hotel in, uh, uh, let's see, it was uh, Santa Ana, because it was near the, uh, what was Orange County International Raceway where we were testing. And um, so we didn't have, we couldn't leave all that stuff in the parking lot. So we took two engines into our room. We had a drum of fuel in our room uh, and it smoked a lot. Uh, batteries, <laughs> transmission parts. Um, yeah, we. It was uh, exciting. They yeah. asked us to leave after a couple weeks uh, because we were causing too much disruption <laughs> working on the car half the night. I was going to say, Daniel, our intern, one of our interns, is waving and saying, "How do you get not one but two engines in the elevator up to your room?" Well, we had a ground floor room. <laughs> okay. <laughs> At the time, so it was easy. <laughs> well, they the, only, the only difficult part is Hemi engines are re- very wide and they barely fit through the door. So that, and they were on little roller carts that we built, so it worked out fine. Yeah. You know, but, yeah, we always uh, said that those people needed to learn how to take a joke. You know? <laughs> and, and they didn't often see it our way. <laughs> I mean, how many security deposits did you have to leave at hotels? <laughs> uh, actually, never. We we somehow dodged the bullet on that. Uh, I don't think they were smart enough to ask for a security deposit uh, in those days. The, you, know, uh, you know, you could live. I had a, per- Dick and I uh, shared a room, and we had a $35 per day Per diem. Wow. That paid for our room and all our food and expenses. And at the end of one of these eight-week trips, that's a lot of money. And we would come home with extra money in our pocket. So we were pretty frugal about how we did things. Yeah. Um, you know, Dick and I would uh, get the car ready at night for the next day's testing. So as Mr. Hoover and Mr. Coddington and uh, Don Carlton and maybe Ted Spihar would all go out to a nice dinner, Dick and I would get our, uh, I hate to say this, surf and turf from McDonald's, which was a fish <laughs> sandwich and a Big Mac, and uh, we'd keep working. So we lived pretty cheap, you know, I, I was just the way it was. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, you dropped Mr. Hoover's name. Perhaps you'd want to enlighten our listeners of who Mr. Hoover was. We know who he is. Yep. 
Well, Mr. Hoover um, is known as the father of the Gen 2 Hemi. So the street Hemi and the race Hemi of the 60s was uh, Mr. Hoover. Uh, Mr. Hoover was an original Ram Charger. Uh, he was a Chrysler engineer. I th pretty much his entire, well, for a number of years until he retired. Uh, he, um, by education, originally he had a degree in physics. And in truth, he, he and Mr. Coddington were brilliant. Well, Mr. Coddington's still alive. But um, Tom was a very brilliant man. Uh, to this day, we, I wouldn't, you know, it's not proper to call him Tom. It, it was always Mr. Hoover. And uh, if you talk to any of the racers, uh, they never called him by his first name. It was always Mr. Hoover. That's how much respect people had for the man. Wow. And um, he, he was just a delightful person to be around. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he was uh, a great guy and uh, brilliant, and he was running the test programs uh, at the time and orchestrating uh, what we would be testing and developing. And, of course, our our really our our job our primary job for chrysler corporation was to provide testing services so that that information could be uh sent out to the rest of the uh, mopar uh, postdoc teams so they could use that knowledge base that we gained uh in testing and you know make their cars go faster um, so our cars were fully instrumented, which was very unusual back in those days. You didn't see drag race cars with full, um, onboard, uh, instrumentation. And unlike today where you can buy a race pack, uh, for a couple thousand dollars and it's about the size of, uh, one or two cell phones, our data acquisition equipment yeah. probably weighed 90 to 100 pounds. Yeah, tell the folks how, because you were talk, talking to us about how you were had like one of the very first race computers inside one of the cars, and it was just a massive wild thing. Yeah. Um, uh, we had one engineer from Chrysler named Ron Killen uh, who just moved back to Detroit from, uh, or the area from Arizona. But Ron uh, came to the program via the Huntsville uh, missile program that Chrysler was involved in. And sometime in the late, I think the late six, uh, 60s, that program kind of wound down, and Mr. Hoover grabbed Killen and, and brought him to Detroit. And Ron actually developed the data acquisition equipment. Uh, we used an H, um, well, it was, we would, could record, I think, six or eight items at once, and that's it. It was on a reel-to-reel -reel machine that was <laughs> in the trunk of the car. Uh, it was all encased in a big box with uh, rubber, uh, actually inner tubes all around it to cushion it. We had two bundles of wire that were probably an inch and a half in diameter running to a junction box. 
and uh, at that junction box would pick up transducers that we had all over the car. So we could only monitor eight things or six or eight things at a time. And then uh, Don would turn on the computer just before making a pass and then turn it off at the end of the pass. And then um, uh, they would pull the tape from the machine, take it to a van that we had with us, and they would play it back and print it on a strip chart recorder and interpret the data. That happened every single run, and we'd make anywhere from 8 to 12 runs a day. Um, we didn't usually run anything more than that because the Hemis of those of those eras only were good for about uh, 8, uh, well, 10 to 12 runs on a set of bearings. So we had to change the bearings at that point, and that was a you know, a couple hours worth of work. So laying under the car, if you were going to do it, <laughs> um, it was it was faster to change motors, but it was, uh, you know, to do what we had to do, uh, that would take a whole day, 12 runs. So, yeah, that was uh, what we did, yeah. and uh, we did it every day. But uh, that data we, that you guys got from that tape had to be invaluable. I mean, how many other factory teams from Mopar had that? No, we shared all that data, so they didn't have to do it. <laughs> uh, when it came time, you know, to run, are you going to run a general kinetics cam? Are you going to run, you know, somebody else's cam? Um, you know, we, we would evaluate camshafts. And, and the way you do it is uh, design of experiments, a DOE. You run a baseline, you correct for uh, the weather and track conditions, and then you make your change, one change only. You, you run that, that uh, and then you close the loop going back to a, uh, your uh, original setup at the end of the day or at the end of your series of uh, runs within the DOE. So you would always have to uh, uh, go back and close the loop, and then you'd know for sure by the time they did all the corrections uh, whether or not this camshaft was worth anything, if it was worth a thousandth or or four thousandths or maybe a whole tenth, who knows? But uh, that's what you had to do. And there was very a uh, lot of documentation involved, and uh, we had these big log books where the uh, the the strips, the strip chart recorder. Uh, output would be in those log books, and you could pull them out 10 or 12 feet, and you could watch the lines go down <laughs> the paper. And, but they'd be all marked up, and, and they'd be in uh, the Chrysler Engineering guys, Al Adam, Tom Coddington, Mr. Hoover, um, uh, John Bowman. They would be interpreting the data and um, uh, writing it down in the log books, and then every week uh, that information, good, bad, or indifferent, would go out to the rest of the teams like Sox and Martin or Dick Landy, Don Grothier, Mike Fons, um, Butch Leal, uh, you know, any of them. Uh, they, they would get all that info, so they didn't have to do the work. I mean, didn't... But then you guys had, like, an advantage for about four days... What happens? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's your point? <laughs> <laughs> I 
taken, Mr. Pappas. I was going to say, you know, didn't the other factory teams go, hmm, you know, we're at Lions today, and it certainly would be nice if we had some of that data that the those guys over there got, had. Well, you know, uh, yeah, well, first of all, we didn't race as much as they do today. Um, I think IHRA had... Oh, goodness, maybe 10 races or 12 races that year, and NHRA had maybe a couple less than that. So there weren't very many races. And in 73, which was my first year with that group, um, we won, I think, uh, all but two of the IHRA races. Uh, and... Um, we won only one NHRA race, but I think we only raced NHRA four races that year. Yeah, but 73, but, isn't that when things got weird for Mopar with NHRA? No, they they started getting weird in 72 um, <laughs> when um, Mr. Maxwell, who I think was Hoover's direct boss back then, I could be wrong, but uh, he went to California uh, I think in November or so, and they were discussing the rules, and they were trying to finalize the new Barracuda for us, or for the team. And uh, and they were told absolutely positively, no tube chassis cars. Can't do it. You know, you have to use, you know, stock-type parts in these cars. Uh, and then we got, everybody got to Pomona that year, and Bill Jenkins showed up with a tube chassis Vega. And he just waltzed right through tech. Nobody even said anything mm -hmm. except us. And then they started penalizing us by adding weight to the cars. So what happened is by that time, we as a Hemi had to run 7.25 pounds per cubic inch of engine displacement. And a Vega only had to run 6.75. So you could have a 2,000-pound Vega racing a 3,000-pound Hemi car. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take much to figure out who's going to probably have <laughs> the advantage there. So uh, that was what we lived with uh, and had to work around all the time we raced the Hemi cars, which was really through the end of, uh, for us, it was the end of 73, but they, uh, there was still involvement in 74 with some of the cars. And it was at the end of 74, the Chrysler said, we've had enough. We're not going to do this anymore. Every time we come out with something, you kick us in the teeth and tell and change the rules. So, uh, that's when Chrysler actually pulled the plug on Pro Stock uh, the first time, is at the end of '74. So yeah, it was the rules were tough against us. They didn't like us, and um, yeah, but uh, what, what's not to like besides you guys were dominating like no tomorrow? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a little bit prejudiced here. <laughs> um, you can bring your prejudice. This is the only time you can bring prejudice here. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, 
it, it's as if they always wanted Chevrolet to win. And they didn't like it when the Mopars dominated. Uh, when we ran heads up against the big block Ford and the big block Chevrolet, um, we we just dominated them. And those were good motors, and those were good people running those cars. Nicholson was a hard-working man. Uh, Jenkins, very hard-working guy. But the Hemis just made better power. And we worked, we worked hard, too. We worked seven days a week, 50 weeks a year. Sorry, I mean, that's what we had to do. Wow. And Mr. Hoover uh, was of the mindset that he wanted to not just go and win, he wanted to crush the competition. Well, we did that, but that also hurt us because they didn't like a one uh, mark uh, to always win. Of course, if you look at today's pro stock, what do you have? you have an all Chevrolet show. And I guess they finally got their wish, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of weird, especially if you go back into history and, and you see, you know, the, the popular hot riding and, and the uh, hot riding car crap magazines and stuff like that. And you see, when it comes to pro stock, it was dominated by the 426 guys all over the place. And the thought right. here was being, you know, because they did the same damn thing with NASCAR, Gee, you guys built a Superbird? Gee, it looks like it's winning a lot. You're penalized, as opposed to going the American way and saying, well, fellas, you other guys have to build a better mousetrap. Look what these guys got. Right, right. It's almost you want, because did you ever personally talk to to Grumpy? Oh, sure, yeah, absolutely. Was he as intense as people said he was about Chevrolet? Oh, yeah. Um, He was a very nice person. Uh, he wasn't really that grumpy. I didn't think <laughs> that was, you know, but it fit sometimes. I mean, yeah. he could he could be abrupt with people. Uh, you know, he you have to understand when when we were all at the races, we weren't there to have fun, and we all worked very very hard. Uh, the days were long, and um, it was uh, not an easy life. So if if someone. Uh, you know, if you're working on a car and someone comes up and starts asking you questions or, you know, giving you a, you know, a rash of uh, uh, aggravation, <laughs> you don't want to listen to that. So, you know, get out of here. Leave me alone. I got work to do, that kind of thing. And maybe that's where some of his grump, uh, you know, mo- moniker came from. But he was he was a lot of fun to be around. Especially you get away from the racetrack, all those guys were a ball to be around. So, you know, we, we all traveled together. We stayed at the same hotels most of the time. So you spent a lot of time with those people. That was your extended family in a, in a way. Wow. I mean, friends everywhere by the Christmas tree, but the Christmas tree, I should say. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It, when, when, it's, when you're racing, it's all business. Yeah, and you can't take it personal. Um, you just have to go do your job and do it the best you can, and the chips will fall where they may. You know, Joe, how many factory teams were there for uh, Mopar? Oh goodness, there probably was at least uh, eight or ten. You have to remember, uh, 
we were the in-house factory test team. So we had a, I guess you might call it a special status. Yeah. But the, 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 the real premier teams were the teams like Sox and Martin and Dick Landy, who did all these clinics. Uh, and uh, uh, Don Grothier also did clinics. Uh, they, they would go into dealerships and basically put on a big display, and they'd have these seminars for the, the dealerships, uh, customers who were buying performance cars, and they could answer questions and give people guidance on, you know, whatever it was that they were buying or, or racing. So those were the next level of teams. And then, then there were also all the contract guys like uh, Butch Leal who, uh, and Mike Fons and, uh, oh goodness, Bill Bagshaw and a number of others uh, that were Ken Van Cleve. I'm, I'm, the names are just starting to pop in. But... Uh, all these guys had a, a deal with Chrysler, and they would get money, parts, and help. Uh, you know, uh, help from like the stuff that we learned to pass on to them. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask you, Joe. I mean, being a factory team for Mopar back in the day, I, I love the fact that they put you guys under the heading of a factory R and D. Well, nice. So now you can go back to that '69 uh, Belvedere and put that 426 Hemi with just the right cam in it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, good pro stock cam, or, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, and use the technology that uh, that was developed. I mean, there was um, a lot of work done on every part of the engine. Mister Hoover was very um, uh, detailed. And he and Ted Spihar worked extremely close together. Ted is an absolute fabulous engine builder. And he remembers stuff that, uh, of course, I wasn't the engine builder. I would change the bearings in the engine at the racetrack, but, uh, you know, I was not the builder. So Ted was a, uh, is still a... Uh, encyclopedia of engine information and he kept meticulous records as as you would in any, any engineering program yeah. so but that was directed by mr. Hoover and uh, they worked together they they would talk about stuff they would uh, work out details they would try different things you know not everything works uh, sometimes you have failures but we had any failures we had would come in testing, not at the racetrack. So very rarely did we ever have a racetrack-related problem. You know, so. Joe, did people, did folks from Highland Park come up to you and say, "Oh, guys, look for what we just developed. Fire this up." I mean, did you ever see something that came to you that you went, "What the heck is this?" that they wanted to use on either in the engine or on the body or on the chassis itself? Um, no. <laughs> um, and the reason, really the reason was we were, uh, Mr. Hoover did an excellent job of no. uh, insulating us from any of those kinds of pressures. Okay. Uh, they would have engineering meetings in Highland Park, and he would come back with, 
some semblance of a marching order, I'm sure, and it would uh, be developed into front or rear spoilers, uh, you know, when it came to aerodynamics on the car, or, you know, things with driveline that they they may want to try or not try. So, yeah, we were insulated from that. We just had a work plan. We worked to it. Uh, We had, um, we knew exactly what we were expected to do and how we were expected to do it. So um, that insulation worked pretty well. And and Don also insulated us, I'm sure, from all the politics that was going on in the background. So, you know, Dick and I could just do our thing. You know, we we were in our own shop, just Don and and Dick and myself, and we built uh, stuff there. Uh, a lot of the stuff that was going on in the car to be tested for, let's say, aerodynamic stuff or hood scoop work or anything like that. But uh, we didn't have to worry too much about the, the politics or those people telling us to do something. Nobody gave us our orders except Mr. Hoover and Don Carlton. <laughs> I was going to say that, that Mr. Hoover, I mean, being the liaison between you folks and, and Highland, Park, and for those who don't know, Highland Chrysler used to be headquartered out of Highland Park when Chrysler was a real Chrysler, and God knows what alphabet soup it is today. Yeah. However, don't um, ask me. <laughs> it, it it's got to be amazing. For you know, you almost wonder: did the big wigs at Chrysler go? You know what, fellows? We we saw the race teams are doing well, but we got to get another half second. Go get us another half second off. And did Mr. Hoover have to come back and say, well, fellas, guess what? Or it was like, yeah, okay, we'll take that under advisement. Mm, you know, I, I never saw that, uh, and I never felt it. Uh, we were very fast, and uh, we were winning. And we did really well in IHRA because you would run a different set of rules, and it would be more heads up as opposed to giving all the advantage to the uh, small block inline engines like the uh, the small block Chevy and stuff like that. Yeah, so, you know, we, we were insulated from that, I think, John. Um, we didn't, you know, it didn't really affect our, our, our work at all. Because it's fascinating for people who, I mean, in racing, and, and especially for the common guy who doesn't really know, but they only hear, you know, you're a factory team, their eyes just go ching, ching. Free engines, free camshafts, free tires, free this, free that, you know, and it's like, well. (laughs) Well, there is a saying, John. The first rule of racing is to never spend your own money. You always spend somebody else's money. Yeah, man. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because if you had money and you were trying to do it on your own, you wouldn't have any (laughs) very quickly. So, uh, (laughs) you know, and it spoils you for the rest of your life. That's why I never personally had a drag race car to go race because I, I, I just saw all the pitfalls. I only knew one way to do things. And that was Ted Spihar's, uh, Mr. Hoover's and Don Carlton's way. That was it. That was how I did stuff. And uh, to this day, I... You know, I have to be real careful because I have these 
caviar ways of wanting to do things, and I have to do it on my own nickel now, so I have to be very careful. I mean, what did the factories give? Did they give you, like, like tools and stuff? I mean, did they pay for the shop? How far did they go writing out the check? Well, as my understanding of the business aspect of it is, um, they provided uh, Don Carlton a money. And he could go get his own, he had to go get his own shop. And we brought our own tools. So all the tools that were there were, you know, if they were our toolboxes, everything in them was mine or Dick's or Don's. But uh, the shop tools, the welders, the sheet metal equipment, the um, jacks, all that stuff, the tables, the compressor, that would all be Don Carlton's. And when the program ended, Don, we moved all that stuff to North Carolina. And I went back and got my degree. And um, uh, so that kind of ended it at the end of 74. Uh, but uh, Don continued to race out of his, he had another shop in North Carolina. And um, so he took all that stuff there. And uh, I was there just two years ago, and it's all still there. Um, his son has the buildings now and has a very successful business uh, that he runs from there. It, and he, his son deals in packaging stuff, uh, mostly for the furniture industry, which is right around the corner from them. So, mm. yeah. yeah, I mean, all that, all that equipment's still there, the mills, the uh, lathes, the... Uh, uh, even some, I think one of the welders is still there. I don't know if it works any longer, but <laughs> Donning has other welders now. So, I mean, did it, was it like going back to your old high school? Uh, when I went back to North Carolina? Yeah. yeah. Um, my first trip back to North Carolina after Don passed away in 77 was actually about 2005. And my wife and I went down there, and I had called Don and said, we're going to be there, uh, let's go out to dinner. And uh, the last time at that point I had seen Don, he was still a teenager. Well, when I saw him in 2005, he was in his 40s. And uh, I was, you know, it took my breath away to walk into the old shop because I had been there when it was first built and helped move all the equipment in there. And I walk in there, and I walk into this little office area, and all the posters and the trophies and the ah, it it was it it was uh, it gets choked up when you look at that stuff, and, and it all comes rushing back. And uh, Donnie and I, young Don and I. Who, and Don, I think, is in his late 50s now. Young Don. Uh, yeah, young Don. <laughs> uh, we, uh, you know, we, we I, I was down there two years ago, and we'll be down there in, a, in about three weeks because um, there's a, an event at Mooresville Dragway where his father, I don't know if Don, Donnie will go this year, but uh, I'm going to try to convince him that it's a good idea to run over there and, we're going to do that and hopefully uh, get to visit with uh, Don and his wife. And his mom still lives there and uh, his sister and their families. And so, yeah, there's a lot of history for me down there. 
Wow. Well, you want to talk about the Tigers winning? (laughs) (laughs) Who are the Tigers? (laughs) Is that a smart... (laughs) (laughs) Are they running in Pomona this year? No. (laughs) You know, it's one of the most fascinating guests we've ever had on here on the 515 and we've had plenty a matter of fact every single one of them have been but normally right about now is we sometimes will ask off off air if you'd come back but i'm telling you right now not only are we out of time but we have not even scratched you know what we did we got uh probably about 12 questions in my head to ask you i asked you one you know, yeah, I need you to come back. We we seriously would love to have you back at, as our guest. I mean, at any given time you want to come in. Matter of fact, we want to lock you up early. Only because what a, a wealth of information you have, for, and especially for somebody that was there in the golden age of, of uh, drag racing. You know, whew, I'm telling you, it's fascinating. Well, any time. Um... You know, I, I travel a little bit, but uh, we're home a lot, so uh, we can set something up that uh, we can talk offline. And uh, Absolutely, yeah. I was going to say, hang on. Is there anybody we should say hi to or something while we're here? Normally, this is where we ask people to say hello to your sponsors, but... <laughs> my, my wife is my sponsor. <laughs> well, you can name her, absolutely. Well, you know, Lynn. Her name is Lynn, and... Uh, uh, you know, she's my, uh, I tell, I tell everyone that's my boss, you know, just, you know, I do what she tells me to do. Man. I mean, was she there with you in 73? No, no, okay. we didn't meet until much later. Uh, we've been married 40 years now and, uh, you know, we, uh, met, uh, in like 1980. So it was after the racing and, uh, we, uh. Yeah, she's uh, always uh, surprised because there's a new story that comes out, and she says, "Oh, you never told me about that." Well, <laughs> Oops. Uh, well, no, not so much. Oh, Oldfield was still alive, and we got talking. Something would he would mention something that w- which would bring on another story, and you know how that stuff goes. It just keeps mm-hmm. multiplying. So, yeah, and when we get together with all our friends, uh, the, the McCandless family or, or some of the other racers that we used to race with, uh, the stories just start pouring out from it, both sides. So uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Good Lord, if they could get all you guys in one room with one camera and say, go. Well, <laughs> we're, we're going to be doing a uh, 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 talk in uh, Chicago the weekend before Thanksgiving at the uh, Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals. Corvette, uh, ooh. Well, it'll be moderated by Jeff Stunkard, who wrote our the book on our program, and it'll be uh, Butch Leal, myself, um, Ted Spihar, I believe. Uh, I haven't told him yet, uh, <laughs> but I know he'll be there. Have you and, told Lynn yet? Uh, couple other people so it'll be like a they they hold a uh, like a, a thing like that a seminar at each one of those muscle car deals so uh we'll we'll be doing that um and it's at the stevens convention center the weekend before thanksgiving 
So. Wow. And for $60, you can have your picture taken next to Joe Pappas. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe next to Lynn for 65, evidently married the woman when she was five. Way yeah. to go, man. <laughs> I, honestly, guys, we, we, are, we're, we know, hang on, uh, CKWI Radio 76, we know with the affiliates we, we run a little bit over with Mr. Pappas, but I don't give a damn, frankly. I know the owner of this place. Oh, yeah. And so I'll tell you what, we'll make it up on the Detroit Sports Authority on the other side, so don't worry about a damn thing. So, Joe Pappas, Motown Mr. I swear to God, son, uh, we're already getting the calendar worked up to have you back. Great. I'll be glad to do it. Uh, I, I'm telling you, this is, it's fantastic. All right. So uh, hang on the line for just a second right now. CKWI Radio 76 years station, the only one that gives a damn about the greatest sport on earth, and that's drag racing here with Steppenwolf. <laughs> 